You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. everybody you're listening or watching wake up call the podcast i'm your host christina previtt and joining me today is my guest dr supriya rao dr rao has been practicing medicine for more than 11 years she received her undergraduate degree from mit after which she graduated from duke university school of medicine she completed her internship and residency in internal medicine from the hospital at the university of pennsylvania She went on to complete her fellowship in gastroenterology at Boston Medical Center. She has special clinical interests in gastrointestinal motility, as well as nutrition and obesity medicine. Welcome, Dr. Rao. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. Of course. You are the very first guest in my new Fem Doctor series, and I'm very excited to interview you as well as all of the other incredible women physicians that will come after you. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very honored and excited about this opportunity. This is great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So we were just talking before we started recording about what your real specialty is. Of course. Yeah. So I'm a gastroenterologist by training. Um, So I went through college and medical school, um, four years of medical school, and then I did three years of internal medicine residency. And then within, so that's basically adult medicine. And then um, once I did that, I finished um, a GI fellowship, uh, which was another three years after that. So I learned how to do procedures like colonoscopy, endoscopy. So all those, um, you know, things. When, once you hit the age of 45 to 50, people get nervous about getting their colonoscopy. I have done thousands of those at this point. Um, we learn basically everything about the GI tract from the esophagus to the stomach to the intestines and the colon, as well as the pancreas, liver, gallbladder. So we kind of take care of a range of different organs in the body. Um, and then, so my clinical interests specifically within GI are motility, basically how the GI tract moves and kind of disorders that go along with it, as well as um, inflammatory bowel disease. So if you've heard of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, we take care of a lot of patients who have that, as well as um, uh, women's health, because women have, you know, specific GI conditions that affect them and can cause quality of life issues as they get older. And as well, in the last um, couple of years, I've really been interested in obesity medicine and just helping patients achieve healthy weight to avoid having chronic medical issues as they um, get older. I'm always curious how physicians choose their specialty. How did you end up doing what you do? So I uh, actually never wanted to be a physician when I was younger. I uh, only decided towards the end of my college career. So I was way behind all of my peers who knew like, from day one of entering undergrad that they wanted to be a doctor. I was not one of those people. Um, I actually had like a fairly uh, bad experience as like a candy striper in high school. So I never was that interested. I was kind of scared of, you know, needles and blood and all this kind of stuff. I didn't think it was for me. Um, And, but then as I was going through college, I was doing kind of computer science and, uh, you know, I, I didn't really find it super fulfilling. I didn't feel like I was doing anything specifically for anybody. 
And um, I, I really enjoyed my science classes, my chemistry and biology classes. You have to take those as kind of a requirement to graduate. And then I took a, a class in um, human disease. And so just learning all about different genetic diseases. And I found that fascinating. And so that was kind of my first thought about maybe I'm not in the right field or I'm not doing what I should be doing. And, um, and as time went on, I basically switched my career path. I switched to biology and bioengineering. And I thought this was kind of more what I was interested in. Still wasn't convinced about becoming a physician, but um, in my senior, like my second semester of my senior year, I volunteered um, at a hospital uh, neonatal ICU taking pictures of babies for their parents if the parents couldn't be in the ICU with them all the time. And so that kind of patient con connection and interaction um, and just kind of exposure to a hospital environment uh, was a much better one that time around. And I felt like this is something I could see myself doing. And um, then I applied to medical school after that and kind of went down my path um, into medicine. I, I have to ask, what was the bad experience you had as a candy striper? <laughs> I was 12, uh, 13 years old. You know, I, I didn't know what there was necessarily to know about what, what hospitals were about. Um, but I just remember I was, you know, when you're that age, you're made to do a lot of menial tasks. And so yeah. it was kind of like, I, you know, running to, you know, running errands, like cleaning up a lot of, you know, bodily fluids off the floor, you know, things like that. It was just not the, the most glamorous thing, which medicine isn't honestly. And that's what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis. But as a 13 year old, I wasn't really able to appreciate that at that time. Were you thinking at that point in your life that you might want to be a doctor? I was thinking like, I don't know what I want to do. So let's, let me get some exposure. And that's actually wasn't like a proper exposure to what a physician does necessarily, but it was just kind of a hospital environment. And yeah. So then what were you planning to do? I was planning on doing computer science and, you know, do tech essentially work for Google or Facebook or something like that. So it sounds like you have the science brain, if that's really such a thing. I've yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, yeah, I, I did a bunch of engineering classes in undergrad. I mean, I did a biomedical engineering degree as well. And so it was kind of very, I, I have a very hardwired science and math brain, but um, it's not. And, and, I, and actually now I'm able to flex that a little bit because I'm doing some digital health consulting and things like that. So it's really cool to be able to do that now. But um there are many years in between where I wasn't necessarily using that part of my brain. <laughs> so you, so then you decided that you, once you started getting more exposure to biology, that you, you kind of liked it and you could see yeah, yourself I like, doing I enjoyed, that. Yes. I enjoyed that science part. Um, and then that experience I had um, in the IC, the neonatal ICU really kind of sealed it. I was like, wow, this is really powerful. I feel like, you know, impacting people's lives and being able to help them. Um, and that spoke to me. And that's why I chose to apply to medical school at that point. And what was your medical experience, your medical school experience? Like, did you love it? Love it? I loved it. I, so I went to Duke for med school, um, which is in Durham, North Carolina. And I had a wonderful class. There were a hundred of us. It was a pretty tight knit community. And I'm still, you know, some of my best friends are from med school because you kind of go through a lot during that time. Um, I met my husband, you know, in med school. So that was obviously a plus as well. Uh, and it was just a really lovely time. Um, we, you learn kind of, we all forged our path, you know, you learn trial by fire and learning how to do things. Like I was learning how to stitch during surgery and, you know, all the different things, learning how to work up a patient, how to help be able to interact with a child on my pediatrics rotation and then to help, you know, their parents understand what was going on. 
So it was a lot of really amazing experiences. And again, I felt like at that point, I was like, yes, I made the right choice. This is something I can see uh, myself doing for the rest of my life. Well, I'm not in the medical field for anybody who doesn't know me. I'm a lawyer by trade. So it's I, I have the English brain, again, if that's a thing. <laughs> so I always think medical school, you know, how intimidating, like you have to be, it's so intense, such intensive study and pressure. Is it really like that? Is that perception correct? Well, you're a lawyer. You went through the bar exam. That's intense amount of study and like all your law school exams too. So I feel like it's all kind of a pressure, but in different ways. Um, I would say in medicine, there's a lot of physical um, demand too, right? So on my surgery rotation, I would have to get up at 2.30 in the morning and be able to start rounding on patients at three before I would then meet the attending who was ready to round at five before we would get to the OR at seven. So like my day had already, you know, been four hours long even before we get to surgery. So in some ways there was a lot of, you know, memorization about, you know, what muscles here, what blood vessels are here. And then being able to say that when someone asks you on demand, but then the physical um, demand of just being able to stand there in hours long surgery, paying attention, things like that. So in some ways there was physical demand. Obviously there was mental demand with like our exams. We take a lot of exams in medical school. And then after medical school, or, you know, there's step one, step two, like all these kind of standardized exams that we have to take as well to get into residency. So I guess in some ways there's a lot of, you know, pressure, but, you know, I don't see necessarily that, like, I think every specialty, whether it's law or business, there's pressures in different ways. Um, but well, it, it, wasn't, it was in definitely intense in times. <laughs> whatever you do, I think people just have a tendency once they are acclimated, they look back on it like, I don't know, maybe it wasn't really that bad. Right. So, yeah. So other people could say to me, well, you went to law school. I mean, that what couldn't have been easy. And no, it didn't feel easy at the time. But I guess it's easy for me to look back on it and say it wasn't really that bad. Right. So, um, it's I mean, a- I would say like now having a family and kids and all that kind of stuff. And only at that time having to take care of myself, it wasn't that bad (laughs) because now I'm in charge of so much more responsibility. So I feel like I was just, you know, it was hard definitely, but it was fine. Well, my, and again, you know, my perception is what television, you know, it's, which I want to ask you about, because I know when I watch legal shows, it can be a bit frustrating. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) you know, largely not accurate or representative of what it's really like. Um, I may as well just ask you that now when you watch TV shows or movies where they're representing doctors or a hospital setting, are they largely unrealistic? For the most part, I would say they are very unrealistic. Like I remember watching, I I used to watch Grey's Anatomy um, and they're a surgeon. They were surgery residents at the beginning of the show, yet they were like, still in bed when the sun was up. And I was like, that never happens. <laughs> like, they were still asleep. I was like, you would already have done like five hours of work at this point. Um, and obviously there wasn't as much drama as there was uh, in these shows. But actually the one show that I think was truest to medical life was Scrubs because I feel oh. like, yeah, I mean, just kind of, it, it talks about the mundane and the absurd and whatnot. And I felt that show actually most closely captured what it was like to be a resident and an attending. That is surprising. I would not have thought you were going to say. Yeah, it's a great show. And like, it's hilarious, but it just, it really like, it talked about real diseases and it talked about, you know, just kind of like the everyday of being a medical resident. And it was pretty on point, I would say. 
something else that I've always wondered is as a lawyer, we don't just go into court and do everything cold off the top of our heads. I mean, some things, of course, you know, off the top of your head, but you've had all this time to prep. And it always seems like when I'm watching things on television that, and usually it's like an ER setting. So, you know, someone comes in with some terrible emergency and all the doctors just immediately, they just know what to do. And I always think, do they really, I mean, do you never have to consult a book or someone else? I mean, I would say in general, I, I think after you've seen enough patients, when someone's coming in with certain symptoms, your mind starts to go down like one algorithm. And so I think that's probably what happens. Like you, you start going down that algorithm and once you start getting blood tests back or, you know, whatever, that can kind of, again, point you in the direction that you need to go. I think if it's like a true emergency where someone's like bleeding out or like, you know, their, their airway is compromised. Like that's the, the, the one, the number one things we always learned was making sure the patient is stable. So like making sure that they're able, their airway is, you know, okay, that they're breathing okay, that their blood is circulating appropriately. So those are the, the first three things, especially when someone's coming into an emergency room. And then after that, you start going down blood testing, imaging, all this kind of stuff. So it, it, I would say like people, we still have, still consult, you know, reference texts and things like that. But I think are you get trained after a while after seeing enough patients about what you need to do. That makes sense because I do family law. So I do divorce. I'm not doing everything that comes in the door. You know, I'm not doing real estate. I'm not doing personal injury. So if I had to work in all of these different specialties, then it'd be hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I really give props to my ER colleagues because they, they, they see everything that comes into the emergency room. So myself, I'm just, I'm just a gastroenterologist and, you know, it's this one slice of adult medicine that I am an expert in GI and obesity medicine. So I feel like even that is just vast amounts of information. So yeah, uh, hard sometimes, but. So how, how, and when did you start to develop your specific interest? So um, in medical school uh, towards, so in your fourth year, you start doing more rotations in the specialties that you have an interest in. And so um, I knew at that point I wanted to do internal medicine or adult medicine. Um, I just found uh, it was kind of like my people. I felt like really comfortable with them. We would talk about diseases. It's kind of like, you know, discussing a workup for patients, but it was just like I had really good camaraderie with internal medicine folks. Uh, so after that, I went to internal medicine residency and then I didn't know if I was going to just stay as an internist or if I was going to specialize further. So you can specialize into cardiology. That's the heart or um, nephrology is the kidneys or GI or pulmonary, which would be lungs and ICU medicine. So there was a lot of different specialties to think about. So then in residency, you go through all the different rotations. You do a pulmonary rotation, you do um, a cardiology rotation, you do an ICU rotation, GI rotation. So um, when I did my GI rotation, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked everything, but I, I really liked the procedural aspect of GI as well as the, it has a lot to offer. I think, like I said, the procedures, acute um, care, like so for example, if someone comes in with bleeding from an ulcer in their stomach, you can fix them really quickly and then they'll be fine. And there's also chronic patients, that patients you follow for uh, a long time as well. So you develop good relationships with that. So I think it was just kind of the, you know, different, uh, the variety that you see in terms of patients and patient care. So uh, I did another GI rotation after that and really loved my mentors and then decided that at that point that I wanted to do GI. When do you really have to decide? So technically, I mean, in order to be able to apply within a, like, you know, to continue seamlessly without taking a gap, 
um, I would say you would need to decide towards the end of your first year of residency. At that time, I think the rules have changed a little bit right now, but at that time we had to decide by basically the beginning of our second year. So what are some of the typical procedures that you do? We, we were joking before we started yeah. recording that you had a list of stuff that I found on a website that I can't pronounce. <laughs> um, um, I mean, what's basically what you do? So in terms of procedures, I do upper endoscopies. That's basically where we put a flexible scope down. Uh, your, obviously, the patient would be asleep, but we would uh, put it down your mouth into the esophagus to take a look at, you know, if there's any issues with swallowing and look in the stomach to rule out any ulcers or inflammation. And then you go into the first part of the small intestine as well. So that's um, a pretty routine test. And then colonoscopy is kind of like the main, one of the main procedures that we do. So um, it's a colon cancer screening test or if a patient comes in having, you know, blood when they have a bowel movement or changes in bowel habits or, um, you know, any family history of certain diseases, then uh, we do colonoscopies to look at the colon and make sure that there is no um, abnormalities there. So is this something that you're doing pretty routinely every week? And is it ever anything that you ever get bored with? No, because uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's funny because like you can have these weeks where you're seeing all sorts of pathology, all sorts of horrible things that you have to tell patients that they have. So then when you get the easy, like normal ones, it's kind of nice to have that mix of, you know, normal and abnormal. Um, obviously, you know, we want to do the best for our patients and make sure that they're healthy. So I'm happy when they're normal, but if they're abnormal, it, like, trying to help them along with the next steps in their therapy is also very fulfilling too. And so, I was, I was okay. checking at your Instagram account today and there was um, one post where you had indicated that you had some patients that were, you had diagnosed with different types of cancer. And I was thinking, how do you do that? How do you tell a patient that they have cancer? really hard because because um, I'm not the one who helps them with their next step because automatically their question is, so what do I do now? Like, what can, like, you know, is it curable? What, what kind of treatment do I get? And I don't have that answer. It's the, usually the oncologist or a surgeon will have those next steps. So I feel like I'm the messenger usually in terms of, um, you know, we, we, after someone has a procedure and I'm worried about something, we discuss it after that test. I will say something like, you know, I found something, I don't know 100% what it is yet. We are sending it off to the lab, the pathology lab, and the pathologist will contact me once they have an answer. But, you know, I am concerned it could be X or, you know, something, uh, maybe a cancer or something, um, you know, more worrisome. So I at least set it up in their mind that this is something that they need to think about and be prepared for in case it is bad news. So, and then I usually, within a day or two, I get the pathology result and then I call the patient and then discuss oh, great, good news, it actually ended up being fine, you're, you're fine. Or if it is something um, more serious, then I said, okay, the next steps are this, we're gonna do this, you're gonna get some CAT scans, you're gonna go see the oncology doctor, you're gonna see a surgeon. So I kind of help set things up for them, but then after that, um, they you know, go on to other specialists. Can you tell if somebody has cancer when you do the procedure or do you have to wait for pathology? I mean, I can, I can guess, but I never say a hundred percent because I've taken out things where I'm like, oh, that definitely was nothing. And it ends up being cancer or vice versa. Like if something looks really quite, you know, abnormal and I'm really concerned it's cancer and it ends up being something benign. So, um, I, I always, I never say a hundred percent. I do say, I think it might be, or, you know, a little bit 
hedge a little bit towards one way or the other, but I never say 100%. And are there certain standards about how to handle that? Like, for instance, you you said you'll say, I think it could be because you wouldn't want to just say nothing and then spring that on them. Yeah, Is exactly. that sort of the standard? Is that something that they teach you either in medical school or later? Or is that just a matter of preference for the doctor? I, I think... I think I just basically watched what my attending physicians did when I was training. And so a lot of times they would say, you know, I'm concerned it could be cancer, but we're going to wait and see what the final, you know, pathology comes back in a couple of days. And so a lot, that's what I would hear a lot. Uh, and that's basically what I've adopted as well. No one specifically told me that's what I should say. Yeah. And do you ever, I mean, I guess, how do you feel? Cause I can't imagine having to tell somebody that and how do you yeah, feel? It never feels good. It never I feels know. Good. Right. <laughs> But, but I will say as an attorney, you don't want your attorney to be overly emotional. I mean, you want them to care about you to, on right. some level, but you don't want them to be this emotional person that. Yeah. I don't want to start crying in front of a patient while I'm giving them a diagnosis or anything like that. But no, I mean, I basically, I'm never happy to give that diagnosis ever. Um, but you know, we just talk it through, you know, I'm saying, I'm sorry that this is happening, but we're here for you. You know, we just offer them support in that way without being overly emotional because you can't, if you get so invested to the yeah. point where you're overly emotional with every single diagnosis, it, you'll burn out and it's really difficult to do. So. Yes. And, and I think even in terms of practicing law, you become less effective. Just kind of, I don't know. It's one of these things where you just build it up in yourself to just not be overly emotional and, but be caring and empathetic, obviously, but um, you can't be that way. Otherwise it's not going to, you're not going to do well in medicine, I would say. Yeah. So the people that get cancer, they get passed off to someone else who, uh, I guess, an oncologist. Yep. So then who are the people that you are treating on a more ongoing basis? What kinds yeah, of sure. diseases do they have? Right. So I look, um, I treat patients who have all sorts of GI diseases. So swap people have swallowing disorders, people who, you know, if someone comes in and they have like chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, chronic abdominal pain, um, inflammatory bowel disease, like I mentioned, like, um, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, acid reflux, um, pancreas and liver disorders. So hepatitis B, hepatitis C, um, alcoholic cirrhosis, you know, different kinds of, you know, liver diseases. So we have a lot of patients, different patients that we see. And so, for example, someone comes in, they say they have like rectal bleeding. And so we talk about that. We set them up for a colonoscopy. After the colonoscopy is done, we find the cause. Um, if it's something like cancer, obviously that's one direction. And if it's something benign like hemorrhoids, then we can discuss how do we treat that and things. So we have a lot of uh, chronic patients that we see long-term as well, in addition to the acute uh, things that we do. So it's kind of interesting to me that you, this is what you do for a specialty because there's so many jokes about colonoscopies and, and things like that. Um, I would love to be a fly on the wall and, um, hear the humor <laughs> that you guys It's funny. Have. I mean, that's another reason why I love GI is because you don't take yourself so seriously. You know, I mean, I feel like in order to be a gastroenterologist, you have to have a sense of humor about things. Um, <laughs> yes. So. Yes. And, and now within the last uh, couple of years, um, because of, so fatty liver is one thing, I don't know if you've heard of it before, but basically it's um, become such a widespread common thing. And especially in the U S so basically uh, you know, at unhealthy weights, 
the fat that we accumulate, especially in our kind of like abdominal area, it starts going into the liver. And so it can cause inflammation in the liver, just like if you were drinking, you know, lots of alcohol every single day. And so over time it can cause scarring and then irreversible scarring. And so then we're now seeing fatty liver overtake more like hepatitis C or alcohol as a reason for liver transplant now. So that's why I wanted to get into obesity medicine and helping people achieve healthy weight because I was seeing hundreds of patients where I was just like, okay, you need to go diet and exercise. And if you don't give people like a true plan besides go diet and exercise, like they're not going to, it's not going to work. So um, being able to tell, give patients like a roadmap about like how to improve your lifestyle and, and, and not just for the fatty liver part, but also for the diabetes and the heart disease and blood pressure and things like that. So yeah, I want to talk about that. Why are we seeing so much of that? Why is it so prevalent? Is it, can we just blame it on the standard American diet? It's that so standard American diet, increased sedentary lifestyle, um, poor sleep hygiene, um, increased amounts of stress in everyday life, um, and like poor support systems. So I think like all of these things kind of work together synergistically to cause just bad, you know, you know, unhealthy weight and, you know, disordered sleep and all these things. And it just leads to bad outcomes, chronic medical issues. And is this something that's more prevalent here in the United States? Uh, fatty liver or well, just the, the standard American diet and all of the diseases that we get because of that. I, I would say it's like definitely more in like Western civilization, like kind of Western, um, countries. I mean, in Europe, we're seeing the similar things, but um, I would say like Mediterranean countries, you don't necessarily see the same thing. So I feel like in, so in, for example, in India and China, so I, I've been to India like several times and we most recently went back, you know, a, a year ago. And even there, we're starting to see an increase of it purely because of introduction of Western cuisine into what would have normally been the Indian diet. Um, Indian like diet. McDonald's. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty, I'm not going to lie. I do eat McDonald's sometimes, but now I don't know. I'm going to feel really guilty about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look around the world, there are what are called blue zones across the world. And so these are areas where people live into their nineties and hundreds routinely don't have chronic medical issues. And if you look at what, you know, connects all these places. So there is a place, you know, in Greece and um, Okinawa, Japan and Costa Rica and Loma Linda, California. So there are a few of these spots and they see that it's basically adhering to a whole food plant-based, not, not that necessarily has to be all plants, but, you know, meat or fish is consumed very minimally plant-based diet with adequate daily exercise, being super active, having a community that supports you getting good amounts of sleep, all of these things um, contribute to being able to have a healthy lifestyle. And it's hard because, you know, in kind of daily American life, our jobs don't necessarily create that kind of situation for us. It's really hard to achieve that. So whatever you can do to at least emulate parts of that, I think, are at least a step in the right direction. So I know that a lot of what, what you're talking about right now is our, our habits and patterns and, um, environment, So like you said, you could tell someone diet and exercise, but if that person has habitually been eating McDonald's and, you know, bad food and not getting sleep and just have generally an unhealthy lifestyle for years and years and years, and they're around people 
that are doing those same things. I mean, how I might be asking you to like solve world peace, but how do you fix that? So I really talk to them about what, what brings them happiness? What in their life do they live for? Like, do they live for their kids or grandkids? Do they live, what do they want to be able to do in the next 10 years? Do they want to see their child get married? Do they want to be able to walk a mile? You know, like I kind of ask them what their true goals are in life. And then we kind of work from that. It's like, okay, you want to be able to, you know, live another five years to see, you know, so-and-so graduate from high school at least. So how do we do that? What is, what, what changes are you willing to make in order to achieve that? So if you're eating McDonald's for every single meal, which I actually haven't found someone who's done that quite yet, but like, if you, um, if you're just eating unhealthy foods at every meal, can we start with what, like a couple meals a week being, and then we talk about what that means. And so we have uh, nutritionists, dietitians, kind of behavioral psychologists as well at, um, as part of the center that I'm in. And so I refer them to speak with them about diets that we can, um, that will work for them. And I pretty much basically say like the Mediterranean style diet, which is high in fruits, veggies, whole grains, um, you know, some small amounts of meat, nuts, seeds, legumes. That's kind of what I think would be healthiest for most people. And then um, we go from there. So trying a couple times a week, how does that work for you? And then starting to, if you've never, if you've been sedentary your entire life, just like walking for 15 minutes outside, you know, just small steps. And then once they see that pattern of getting more energy or, you know, feeling better then we work from there. And then I do prescribe some medications as an adjunct as well. And um, it's just every, every patient I see is different. It's, it's very individualized. And so um, what works for some may not work for others. And we just kind of see what works and kind of trial and error. And that the main thing is to just continue being supportive because the fact that they've come to discuss this in the first place means that they do want to change their behavior and want to make better choices. See if they keep coming back, right? Isn't there such a huge psychological component to that? Because I know people that are, they've been on a diet their whole life, but they've never lost a pound. <laughs> or right. maybe they lost a few pounds, but it always yeah. came back. And it's like, you are you can't just always be on a diet. So how yeah. do you handle that aspect? So I never say it's a diet per se. I, I just say, this is like a lifestyle change. And so it's what you're going to be eating from now on, if they make that full change is, healthier foods. You're not going to feel like you're depriving yourself. I never say never eat chocolate again, or never, you know, do that. I, cause I don't, I don't think that's, you know, that's likely to happen. Every human, you know, you, if you completely deprive somebody of something, they're just going to go the other way altogether. And so I say, yes, you can have that piece of chocolate, but just not every day. Just think about it as a special thing that, you know, you look forward to. Um, and, yeah, it's hard. There's a huge psychological component to it. I think, honestly, that's the number one thing that we need to break down in order to figure out why people have certain behaviors, because everyone knows that, like, if you had, you know, one food versus another, and obviously one's like full of really is very greasy and unhealthy, that the healthier option may be like more vegetable heavy is, is better for you, but then they still go for, you know, one, I think a lot of it is you know, sugar can be very addictive and, you know, refined foods, you get used to them. And so it's just kind of perpetuates a, a bad cycle. But um, I think kind of getting behind the psychology of it, which is why we work with behavioral psychologists to discuss it with the patients to just understand why, why when you're upset, do you eat all of this stuff? Like, you know, what is it exactly that triggers for you? So 
So could we actually cure obesity with just changing our eating habits and some of the I, I mean, I think, I don't know about cure obesity, but I think we would definitely see decreases in um, rates of it, especially when it comes to children. Because for children, if they're already drinking a lot of sugary beverages, sodas, um, eating unhealthy, very highly refined, highly processed foods, I think if we start at that young age and you know, don't just say kids can only eat mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, this kind of, you know, very refined processed food. If we say, yes, you are, try this vegetable, try this. Like, you know, I think we do our kids a disservice and think that they can only eat kid-friendly foods, um, but they can eat foods just like adults. So I hear that a lot. I'll hear parents say, well, I'm giving him chicken nuggets because he refuses to eat anything else. Is that really true? I mean, I can't speak for all children. Obviously there are kids who are super picky and I don't want to say parents are ever doing a bad job because that's not the case. But I do think that just, you know, I think it's important to introduce kids to a variety of different foods um, and just to be able to, you know, give them that chance to really try something new and not zone in on just a couple of foods that are super highly processed that they would eat. I, I think if we give our kids enough of a chance to try it multiple times, something might stick. So, and then again, but honestly, avoiding the sugary beverages is a huge, huge problem. So the sugary beverages are a huge problem. So avoiding those would be a a way to at least. Like soda and actually Gatorade actually has a lot of. Yeah. Gatorade juices, all this kind of stuff is really quite unhealthy. So I don't think I've ever seen a little kid not drink apple juice. Yeah. Juice boxes, man. I grew up on them too. So. (laughs) Oh, so the juice boxes are bad. Oh man. So do they teach you nutrition in med school? Cause I've heard a lot of doctors complain about that. Why? Nope. Unclear, unclear. I think I got maybe two weeks of nutrition in all of my training. Um, I don't know why, because I think we're so focused on um, healing with medicine that we don't really think about healing with preventative ways. And I'm very steeped in Western medicine. Like, you know, I'm very much like a child of like, you know, there, there are medications that can fix problems, but over the last few years, we need to start like the way I think about it more is like, we need to start prevent it from the very beginning. And how do we do that? Obviously, if someone has a genetic underlying condition that is leading them down a certain way, there's nothing you can necessarily do about that. And you may, they may need medication, but very for, for others, like being able to just have a healthy diet and sleep is so important. I don't think people really understand truly how important sleep is. It's one of these things where like, oh, I can survive on four hours of sleep. No, you cannot. Like the body cannot repair and restore itself in four hours. It's impossible. You have no idea how many people tell me they're like, oh, I only need this much amount of sleep. And that's not true. Like the human body requires at least seven hours of sleep. And we majority of people don't give it that. So yeah, I was actually going to ask you to follow up on that because you mentioned it a few times already during this conversation. And I've been hearing more about it as well. I think there's a lot more emphasis on sleep now than there used to be. Yeah, definitely. It's um, one of these things where if we don't sleep properly, our body thinks it's constantly in some state of stress. Like, why are you awake right now? You don't need to be. So something bad must be happening. And certain hormones are definitely going to be upregulated. And um, for example, there is uh, what's called the hunger hormone. It's called ghrelin. And ghrelin, um, you know, when you're about to eat a meal, it's super high. So you're hungry. You want to eat something. When you eat something, its levels go down because you're not hungry anymore. What happens when you're not getting enough sleep, your body thinks, oh my gosh, I'm stressed out. So I need to eat something to give myself enough energy to do what I need to do. 
So your ghrelin levels are through the roof all the time because you're just, your, your body thinks that something is wrong. And so then you're always hungry. This happens to me. I, I can, I know what happens because, so if I'm on call, I have to go in to do a procedure in the middle of the night, let's say 2 a.m. And then I have to go to work the next day. Obviously I've gotten poor sleep that night. So I can already feel myself wanting to make a bad choice about my meal. I'm not going to sit there and like make myself a nice like veggie bowl or something. I want to eat that, you know, piece of chocolate or something because that's going to make me feel better. And it's really amazing. Like just, you know, sleep deprivation makes you want to have sugar and makes you crave things that you normally wouldn't if you got normal sleep. Well, having that awareness is really important too. Yeah. Sometimes I give into it just because I'm like, I can't do anything about it. But then sometimes I'm like, no, I know what's happening right now. And then walk away and just do something else. Well, something that I hate to hear a lot is just have willpower. You know, people, a lot of people will think, well, if somebody's overweight, especially if they're obese, well, they're, they just don't have any willpower. Right. Yeah. I hate, I, I hate when people say that because you don't know what is happening exactly in people's brains and what, what's going on. Never blame anybody for what weight they're at or say it's their fault. It's something that is just, you work at it. You are, you know, supportive of what people's choices are. And you never force anything because that's just going to go the other way. And so, yeah, I agree. I hate when people say it's because people have no will, willpower. We have to really look at the reasoning behind it. People have had traumatic experiences when, when they were younger. You know, there's a lot of different ways. And so that my whole goal is to get to the bottom of those reasons and then work from there. You mentioned earlier that you focus a lot on um, different women's issues as we age, apparently, I guess we have some, some health concerns. Can you tell me what they are? I'm 45. So I don't know if I want to hear it, but. (laughs) So I would say in this country, women, um, there are higher rates of irritable bowel disease in women than men. So irritable bowel basically is when you have abdominal pain or just discomfort associated with changes in bowel habits. And so we have a lot of women who come in who have pain and we work it up, we do lab testing, we do procedures, and there's nothing that like looks anatomically wrong or physically wrong, but they still have symptoms that are interfering with their lives. And so I don't know if you've heard of um, the gut being called the second brain. And so um, it's because there are millions and millions of nerve endings in our GI system. And so, you know, some people carry their anxiety in their gut. And so when that happens, uh, you know, you, you're feeling anxious about something and then all of a sudden you have stomach aches or like you all of a sudden have to go to the bathroom, things like that. So some of these people feel this on a regular basis and it's obviously it's debilitating at times. Um, and they're really difficult to treat because there's not like one medication that's going to solve all their problems. So we have to try different things, try different foods, look at different, you know, ways to help them with that. So that's irritable bowel is one thing I would say. Um, another thing is pelvic floor dysfunction. So especially um, if you've uh, had children uh, vaginally, what can happen is the muscles in the pelvic floor over time can get messed up uh, just because of trauma to that area from childbirth. And so uh, the nerve endings, again, like are not working normally to help you coordinate to have a bowel movement. So I take care of patients who have chronic severe constipation or severe diarrhea because their pelvic floor muscles aren't working normally. And so we diagnose that and then we have actually pelvic floor physical therapists. And there's a great one on Instagram who I did a, a kind of like a webinar with. Um, and she, her name is Heather Jeffcoat, and she uh, takes care of 
purely pelvic floor issues in women. And it's like, you know, very under um, appreciated and under recognized. And once you start actually seeing these patients and taking care of them, you realize so many women and actually some men too, obviously are affected by um, this issue. I actually spoke to a urogynecologist about that mm-hmm. for wake up call. Not for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's, there would be anything wrong with that. No, it's, it's uh, definitely something that, you know, we see in people as young as 20, like, you know, they're really late teens to early 20s. Yeah. And not only from childbirth, it's like some issues that they carried with them from their childhood and they kind of had traumatic experiences and it just. Don't we have enough? Don't women have to deal with enough? I think so. <laughs> what about menopause? Are there, is there, are any of these, the kinds of things that you treat associated with menopause? It's hard to say. Um, I would say, I mean, I definitely see women in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And, you know, a lot of them, it's mainly changes in bowel habits, I would say. So they were regular their entire life. And all of a sudden now everything's a mess or their irritable bowel kind of starts coming up at this time as well. So um, those would be the main things I would say. Is that more prevalent now than it used to be the irritable bowel? I don't know if it's because I'm older that I just hear about it more, but in my world, I think it does seem it, to be. It seems, I think people, I'm sure it was there always, but maybe women just didn't want to say anything about it back then, or maybe they did and they were just dismissed as like, oh, there's nothing wrong because I didn't find anything on the procedures or lab work, so you're fine. Um, but I think it's just being recognized as something that is a true disease and we need to be able to treat it and figure out ways to help people with it because it costs, you know, the U.S. and healthcare dollars like $20 billion a year. Any, you know, just working up of irritable bowel and lost days of work and, you know, missed diagnosis. You know, it's just one of these yeah. things that really, truly affects people and the workplace. And because you can imagine if you're at work and all of a sudden you have to run to the bathroom all the time, like it's not going to make you very um, efficient or, you know, someone at work. And so it's just really important to be able to take care of these patients. So you mentioned the uh, microbiome. That's another um, catchword that I hear a lot now. Can you talk more about that? How do you how do you fix that? Or maybe not fix it. Is it maybe that's not the right expression? But how can you sort of help that to be healthy? Sure. So the microbiome is basically uh, all of the organisms that are present in your small bowel and your colon. So your in your intestines, you have all of these bacteria, viruses, um, even little parasites, and they all work in a symbiotic relationship with your body uh, to basically help you digest your food, synthesize vitamins, they you know um, help your immune system. And so our microbiome starts uh, when we're basically in utero. And so uh, your mother is eating certain foods and kind of helping your immune system along. And then when you're born, you start, you know, if you drink breast milk, or whatever, your microbiome gets established with the different bacteria that are present. Um, and so the whole point is when you're eating foods, let's say like certain car, like, you know, let's say you eat, you know, salad or something like that. And so it goes um, down your tract and then it ends up in your small bowel and in your colon, the bacteria then start interacting with that and, you know, eating it in a way and start feeding um, and make different substances from that. And so if you eat a diet that's high in whole grains, veggies, fruits, and high in fiber specifically, um, that fiber gets fermented into what are called short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are really important in kind of developing immunity 
and developing colon health and keep you in a really healthy way. Um, developing uh, your, helping your immune system along as well. So if you're eating more refined processed foods, what happens is the, all those bacteria, they eat it. And so then certain bad bacteria, so what are good and bad bacteria, I guess, good bacteria start to propagate more if you're eating a healthier diet. And then the bad bacteria start to, you know, propagate more if you're eating the bad, I mean, more refined diet, I would say. So how, how long does it take to screw that up but then how long does it take to fix it? With so your I diet? Think they've, right. They've done studies where even after a few weeks of being on a high fiber diet that they've noted uh, improvements in the microbiome and, and same with the other way around. So what if you're eating healthy most of the time, but then you have that occasional pizza or, you know, ice cream or, you know, something sugary, something, something right. bad, quote unquote. Sure. So I would say, again, like we're all human, so we can't hold ourselves to a point where, I mean, like some people obviously eat healthy all the time and more power to them, but um, I don't really think that is sustainable for most people. And so um, having the occasional, you know, cheat food or something like that is fine. As long as most of the time you're eating, uh, that, that's the main thing is honestly is fiber. Everyone worries about getting enough protein. In this country, we all eat enough protein. Protein is not something that there is no protein deficiency that anybody has in this country. In fact, we eat too much protein, honestly. But fiber is one thing we don't get enough of. You know, I think 3% of the population gets enough fiber or something like that. It's yeah. really low. I've so, been hearing more about that too. What is the yeah. recommended amount? Like, is it 25 grams a day? But I've also- we maybe get 10. <laughs> In the, know, like, right? That know. seems so bad. It seems yeah. really bad, but you can't go from eating like two grams of fiber a day to eating 25 grams a day. Right. So you need to kind of work, work up to it, I would say, because fiber can obviously cause some bloating and things like that. So you're not going to feel great if you all of a sudden go from two to 25. So start incorporating more. And honestly, I, I like to get fiber more from the diet itself, as opposed to a supplement, I would say. And so, um, being able to start incorporating some more vegetables into your diet slowly and then building up to it. And I'm glad you mentioned that about protein, because that's actually a question that I've always had. If you talk to any bodybuilder, they will tell you that you're supposed to have either a half a gram to one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is a lot. Do you agree with that? No, your kidneys can't process that much. Like your kidneys are going to go into overdrive. I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, there's a documentary called Game Changers. Um, wow. It's basically about um, kind of plant-based eating in general. I mean, I'm not 100% plant-based. I eat yogurt sometimes um, and occasional cheese. But overall, I would say I'm like 95% just because I, I have my, the amount of dairy I eat has like almost, has gone down significantly. But um, Game Changers basically looks at mainly plant-based athletes who are able to compete at the elite level, just being plant-based and having plant-based protein as part of their uh, diet. But again, not having protein to the, you know, crazy amounts. I mean, if you're at an elite level, you obviously need to eat a little bit more protein than the average person, but how many of us are there that are at that Why level? is that though? Is, is it really necessary to build muscle? So I think depending on if you're like an elite athlete, in, or a professional bodybuilder in that ways, maybe, but I don't think it needs to be animal-based, honestly. And I think that the average person, again, does not need to eat anywhere near that. Even the average like fit person does not need to be anywhere near those levels of protein. 
I was watching one of those documentaries. I can't remember which one it was. And there was a doctor that said, I have never once ever seen anybody with a protein deficiency. Protein deficiencies are like, you know, in countries where there's, you know, people are starving essentially. Mm -hmm. So what about carbs? Are carbs evil? (laughs) Do they Um, make us fat? (laughs) (laughs) So I do think that, you know, the FDA back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, when they were trying to demonize, um, Car or demonize fat at that point. And they're saying, oh, if you eat yeah. fat, then you're going to become fat. And then they were basically, I remember that food pyramid having like, you need to get to eight to 12 servings of carbohydrates a day or something, I think at that point. And um, I think carbs can be evil in the sense that depending on how you eat them, if you're eating bread, pasta, you know, white rice all the time, then yes, or like very refined French fries or something like that very refined carbohydrates, I think are not good for you. Cookies, crackers, all that, you know, my kids eat goldfish crackers sometimes. I know it's like not great for you, but every so often that, you know. Yeah. Moderation, right? Yeah. And Cheerios. Um, Kids always eat Cheerios. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So I think, I think if you're, it depends on the carb you're eating. So my kids love steel cut oats for breakfast. So that as an unrefined carbohydrate is much better for you than a bowl of cereal. Even though they're both carbohydrates, there's a lot more fiber that's present in the steel cut oats compared to a refined carb. And what about dairy? I I hear, I've heard people say only babies need milk. If you're an adult, you don't need milk. Is that true? Do you agree with that? I do do agree with it. Um, Do I practice it 100%? No, just because I like yogurt. (laughs) But I, but I, but I have to say like my dairy consumption has become very minimal, um, over the last few years. I do agree. Um, you know, we're as mammals, we feed our children, our babies, you know, breast milk, and that's all they need. Like, there's no reason to drink milk after a certain age. I mean, they, my kids drink almond milk and they like it. They've actually kind of lost, they, they lost the taste for cow's milk. I don't really see a point in, um, drinking cow's milk or, uh, kind of the dairy, I know it's very unpopular to say, I would say, but um, I don't really see the need for dairy. Well, you see so many things or hear so many things in the news and on different programs that, and a lot of them contradict each other mm-hmm. and they'll always have doctors that support whatever they're saying. So you, there's so much information out there that's contradictory that you really start to wonder, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? What I agree. I and it, de- it depends on what lobby is like, you know, behind which things. The dairy obviously has a huge lobby. The whole got milk, you know, ad campaign was ingenious. Like they mm-hmm. were obviously you need this for healthy bones. You don't need milk for healthy bones. There's a lot of other ways to like get absorbed calcium from other plant rich foods, but they will never say that. Um, and again, like, I mean, sometimes I have dairy for the convenience of it. If I'm going to somebody's house, I'm not going to tell them I must have a plant-based meal. If there's some, a little bit of cheese and something, I'm not going to like be, a, it's not a big deal, but um, I, I do think that dairy practices. I mean, I mean, livestock and dairy practices are not great. And so, and I think it accounts for a lot of, um, you know, CO2 emissions. And that's a whole other side of the story in terms of environmental consequences of it. But um, from a microbiome perspective, dairy does not help the microbiome. It actually hurts it, I would say. And I mean, a lot more research needs to be done, but in studies where they've shown like, you know, drinking milk versus not, it's, you don't need dairy. I can give up milk. I really like cheese though. Can I eat cheese? (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) 
I, I never tell anybody to do what, you know, what they should or shouldn't do, but um, it is healthier to not eat. At all? Or can you have a little tiny bit? <laughs> Better not to. Some cheese, but you Better know. Not to. Okay. Well, <laughs> chocolate is dairy too. Oh. Well, it depends really... on the kind of chocolate you get. So like if you get like dark chocolate, usually, you know, if you get, there's definitely a lot of vegan chocolate out there, which is just like the cacao bean with some, you know, some varying amounts of sugar or cane sugar or something. But yeah, there's a lot of dairy-free chocolate out there. I like dark chocolate. Okay. So I, I that's something I can do. So when you talk about how um, we should monitor our microbiome and, and we've talked about hormones, I've always found that when I go to the doctor and I ask for them to check those things, they really don't want to. Yeah, because there's no good way right now. I mean, all the microbiome studies are all, it's all research-based right now. Um, But there's like, I mean, there are those companies that say, oh, send us, well, well, it's like a send away kit or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't really trust them either because it's hard to make any true, um, like deductions from that because what what tests are they using? I have no idea. Like, I mean, I think maybe in the in the future, once more research is done, we'll be able to better like biohack your microbiome a little bit. But right now, I don't think that any the research is truly there for, in, for on a personal basis. Okay, because a lot of times, like you were talking about ghrelin. I mean, how would somebody know if they had elevated levels of ghrelin? So ghrelin is only. So you can check ghrelin levels, but that's usually only done in um, like like pediatric patients where they note that there's some kind of abnormality. There's a lot of genetic disorders where ghrelin can be like um, elevated. And so that would be a reason to check somebody's ghrelin. And an average person who is not sleeping properly and doing all these other things that are unhealthy, you attack those first before you would like say, oh, does this person have some sort of elevated ghrelin state? So if I have a bad night of sleep, is it a foregone conclusion that I'm going to have higher ghrelin that day or yeah. is it? Okay. But it'll yep. go away for the next yeah, night. Yeah, it's yeah. Fine. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So it's not like it's a chronic problem. No, no, no. Just... Like if you were, if you were having chronic sleep deprivation every single night, like then you're going to keep having those higher levels and that will lead to bad habits. And it's not just ghrelin. It's other uh, hormones that get produced as well. Cortisol levels, things like that. But, um, that that's why sleep is really important to kind of start resetting your body and making your insulin levels, your cortisol levels, all of those things to be kind of in a more steady state as opposed to these like big swings, which is what you want to avoid. That's another one, cortisol. I'm, I'm hearing about the dangers of cortisol all the time now. How do we check for that? Or, or do we- so You can't can check for it, but again, it's not recommended to check cortisol levels because- what do you do with that information at that moment in time? Like there are certain reasons to check cortisol levels in certain disease states. But again, for the average person, again, if you're like, you had a bad night of sleep, your cortisol is going to be a little elevated because your body thinks it's under some kind of stress. So it wants to be able to give you, um, you know, glucose store, you know, it wants to be able to help you get through whatever stress you're getting, but that the body thinks that you have. Um, But again, if you're, able to follow good habits, good sleep hygiene, healthy diet, healthy exercise, those levels will improve. Well, how sensitive are we to it? Because I feel like everybody has stress and anxiety. Everybody's on Xanax or whatever, whatever the, the latest anxiety drug is. 
is do, are, do we all are we all just walking around with cortisol pulsing through our veins? I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, it's a become a really stressed out, sleep deprived, you know, society. So things have to change, and so I think that really attacking it at the reason and really getting to the bottom of why people do things or eat certain way or are sedentary. It's getting to the bottom of all that. So. Well, I, I can definitely say that I could clean up my diet better. I do love vegetables, but you know, I like some of that other bad stuff too. So I I need to work. It's all there. Again, it's like, (laughs) it's like doing things in moderation. What would you say for you is the most challenging part of being a physician? Um, so in addition to being a physician, I'm also a small business owner. So I'm a partner of my GI practice. And so we deal with um, not only just the med- medical part of taking care of patients, but also the HR part of, you know, having employees and, you know, trying to figure out ways to grow our practice and strategies. So I-, I would say like the medicine part of it is hard, you know, being able to, you know, taking care of patients is hard, but after a while you kind of know what you need to do and figure out how to do things. Obviously there can be, um, you know, patients, you want to be able to do the best for them. And so being available all the time is not possible. And so patients sometimes will, you know, be angry if you're not um, available all the time, but you do the best that you can from that perspective. But overall, I would say the medicine becomes something um, which it gets ingrained in you and you understand how to handle it. I I would say the harder part for me is um, the business side of medicine, because you never learn any of that at all in medical school. No one teaches it to you. It's not even talked about. I think maybe I got one lecture on it in all of like the several, several years of training. And so insurances that, you know, patients have being able to deal with insurances, being able to get their medications covered, being able to, um, you know, just like all the small business aspects of a practice with COVID, it was really hard, you know, a lot of small, a lot of small prior practices um, folded, but for us being able to pivot to telemedicine and figuring out other ways to bring in revenue uh, for our practice. So we didn't have to, we, we didn't furlough anybody. Everyone was able to keep their salaries. We were able to do all this stuff because of strategy and figuring out um, kind of more creative ways of practicing medicine. So that to me is much harder than actually the actual practice of medicine. That's, that's interesting. You say that because there was another femme doctor that I spoke to the other day who said she really wanted to talk about that because that is an issue. And I will say it's an issue for lawyers too. They don't teach us how to run a business. And I do have my own practice, so I can relate to what you're saying. When I started my own practice, I quickly realized I'm not just a lawyer. I have to run a business too, because we have to make money, right? Um, One thing I don't have to deal with though, is I don't have to deal with health insurance companies. It's really tough. Like the insurance companies are really hard because for example, for let's say for ulcerative colitis, there's one medication I want to start a patient on. I'm at the mercy of the insurance company because they may say, oh, they need to try this medication before they can go to that one. So fighting with them to get certain medications covered and it's a constant battle. But yeah, the business aspect is really tough. I learned everything I know on the job. I've been at my practice now for six years. And so um, just knowing the ins and outs, running numbers all the time, that's the part where I don't turn off like the medicine part of it. Like if I was in an an employed physician at a hospital, like, you know, at a academic center, for example, once the medicine's done, you can like not think about it and go home and, you know, keep moving on because the running of the hospital is not up to you. 
Whereas for me, the running of my practice is up to me and, and uh, among, you know, my other uh, colleague, my other partners. So it's something that you think about all the time. Like right now we're recruiting, um, hiring, you know, new physicians. And so I'm on the phone constantly after my kids go to bed, recruiting, talking to prospective hires. And it's, that's the part which is more difficult, I would say. I have to ask you though, I mean, how does a doctor make money? Aren't you stuck with whatever the prices are that are set by the health insurance companies? Yeah. So like, for example, see at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. So they determine what reimbursement is for colonoscopy or an endoscopy. Um, and so, and then there's private insurances, which have their own like numbers set. And so, you know, we we're, we're basically at the mercy of that. And when we do all of our procedures. We obviously make money on those procedures, but it's basically set by some standard. So that's why you have to see 5 million patients in one hour. And there's always a million people out in the waiting room waiting. There's got to be a better model than that. There has to be. <laughs> why don't all the doctors just rally together and protest? <laughs> the, I the think it's getting to that point, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know it's it's a very powerful lobbying group, the health insurance companies, big pharma. Who's doing this for the doctors? We have our lobbying group. We have the AMA among us. So for me, so I'm actually involved in GI uh, um, advocacy. So I was right, actually, as COVID hit in March, I was in DC on the Hill doing some advocacy for prior practice GIs. And so um, I really take that to heart because it's important for our um, our group, at least, to be sure that we you know, are able to take, first of all, it's like introducing bills that take care of patients. That's like my main concern, but then also making sure that, you know, we don't fold and that people don't go into GI because it's not something that looks appealing anymore. I still have student loans that I'm paying off. A lot of yeah. people in medicine do. And yeah, so me too. And I you, know that there's a trend for some doctors to just not do insurance at all, which then means- yeah. They're missing out on whole swaths of patients, like people who need. So obviously I have friends who do that and that's great because they don't have, they don't have the headache of that. It's just, this is how much I charge for one hour of my service and take it or leave it. That is such a, like a relief in some ways because there's no headache associated with it. But then you're missing out on all these like millions of patients who really, truly need your help as well. So. Ken, where do they go? So, I mean, they go to other physicians who accept Medicare, Medicaid. So my, my practice accepts every, like, you know, all pretty much all insurances and Medicare and Medicaid as well. But if you doctors all went on strike and said, we're, we're not doing this anymore. We're not, we're just going to charge out of pocket and we're not going to accept insurance. Then we, really the only people that would go to you that would actually get medical treatment are the ones that could afford to pay you. So I, I know I'm not the first person to, um, you know, try to solve these issues. We're not going to solve them in, in the next five minutes, but, um, but yeah, no, it's a real problem. I mean, it does put a lot of pressure on us in order to stay solvent as a practice. We have to see more patients, do more procedures, um, because oftentimes the reimbursements have gone down for certain things. So, well, I will tell you from my perspective, there are some legal services like that work sort of like health insurance, but they're not really that common. And I don't know too many lawyers that take them. So I charge $4.25 an hour. So I have to have clients who can afford to pay that. And every once in a while, I'll get a call from some company that has these legal service plans and they want to pay me $50 an hour. 
And I just laugh at them. Like, how could I possibly make a living charging only $50 an hour, especially when you've already been accustomed to charging, you know, anywhere from $300 to $500 an hour. And I feel like that's what's basically what happened to the doctors. So I don't know what it is. There has to be a better way. Obviously, there are a lot of people in policy who are working on different ways to improve healthcare, but um, yeah, there has to be a better system. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll be watching the news. We'll see what happens now with um, a new administration in in office. Um, Okay. So what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't a physician? Um, What would I be doing? I don't know. I think what I, I mean, so I love to cook. And so I really, that's actually like one of my major things I love to do in my spare time. I don't know if I got good enough at it, maybe, I don't know if I'd want to open a restaurant because that just seems like crazy hard work, but um, having like some kind of catering, something or other, I, I really enjoy food. And so having a farm and doing all sorts of like super crunchy granola stuff, I think would be kind of what I would do. Do you have a garden? Yeah. So like, um, we had had vegetable gardens for years. We do a CSA, um, every year just to kind of support local, local agriculture. And, um, that's been a big thing for us. So uh, you said you eat plant-based, which is different than saying you're vegetarian. Um, I mean, I am vegetarian. I mean, I guess, I don't eat any meat, but I do eat some animal products like I like yogurt, like dairy, essentially. Okay. But I always feel like the difference between the plant-based people and the vegetarians or even vegans is that, you know, they'll eat a big plate of pasta, but a plant-based person won't. So, I mean, I do eat pasta sometimes, but yeah, I tend to make my meals very vegetable heavy or like grain, vegetable and whole grain heavy. So. So I would love, you should start posting more food. On food. Yeah. Instagram. Yeah. My husband says the same thing. He's like, you need to post more food on your uh, Instagram. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm trying to like balance it with uh, GI education and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, too. you're the role model though, for the plant-based <laughs> crowd, right? Like you're showing people, this is how you should eat. And I will say, I have found that if I go on some, some binge where, you know, I'm eating, just bad food, like for days, like not a lot of vegetables. It's almost like you just, your body wants more of it. But then when you cut it out and you start eating healthy again and start, your body doesn't want it. Yes. I have found that to be true. I found that with sugar, sugar. If you cut out like high amounts of refined sugar, you'll just eating fruit is like sugar enough, honestly, or a piece of like dark chocolate is enough instead of eating like huge amounts of ice cream or something like that. I just don't really crave that anymore. Yeah. Because your body's just gotten used to it. And that's true. So I think a lot of people who have that type of palate, if they would just give themselves a chance to adjust to something else, try it. That's all we're saying. Exactly. And then same thing with like, with activity. I think that just getting off the couch and like just the mindset of being able to be active, everyone's like thinking active means you need to go run five miles. It's nothing like that. It's just like being able to go outside, like being outside is something actually over the last year I've appreciated much more with um, the pandemic because mostly I was like a gym workout type of person. And um, now like we went hiking so much over the summer and, you know, being out biking, being outside, that's just, just going outside for 15 to 20 minutes. That's all you need to, to start down that path. 
Yeah, I've been doing that too. So I, I like to say that there have been some blessings that have come over the come out of the past six months or yeah. so. And that's definitely one. You mentioned that you were working with uh, COVID patients in your when I was uh, stalking you on the yeah. internet. But I was wondering why you were doing that. Is it sort of like all hands on deck right now because of COVID? It was, no, it's mainly so like COVID patients need GI procedures too. So um, basically if someone had like, well, early pandemic, we were only doing emergency cases because everything had shut down. But then when, as time went on, like if someone who has, you know, bleeding or some really severe, you know, emergency type issue and they're COVID positive, it doesn't mean that they don't need that. They still need it. And so we would take care of those patients. And I, I wanted to end with, um, I always feel like physicians just, they must have the secrets to the universe because they know how the human body works. Um, you know, you can save a life. Have you learned anything about humanity or people in general in, in the course of your practice that you could share? I would say that, you know, overall, I, I find that if someone is coming to me for a problem, they're scared, they're worried, and it's easy to become cynical and jaded and write off people's problems. But I always bring myself back to this person is coming to me because they're nervous or scared about something. And to listen to their problems and really try and help them and figure out what is going on, whether or not it's something very serious or not, it doesn't matter. Even if it's not something life-threatening, it's really, it's important to them. So for me, I think, again, I think it's easy to be jaded, but I feel like I have changed in a way to just be more empathetic and kind to people because you don't know what some other people, what someone's going through until they tell you. And um, that is something I've learned more and more as time has gone on is just to be to be a good listener and to understand where people are coming from and to be able to help them. You get to hear things that people probably aren't advertising. I've made, I've heard things from patients that they have never told anybody in their family because it's so private to them, but they, so they trust me with that information. And I take that very seriously. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for the good work that you're doing. I know I said that was my last question, but I lied. I have two more. That's fine. That's fine. What's on your bucket list? Uh, well, I want to travel again. Yeah, so don't once, we all? <laughs> <laughs> um, so my husband and I just had this like country bucket list of, you know, being able to go to all these different places like Australia, New Zealand, like all these like, you know, crazy trips. Um, scuba diving in the Maldives is on my bucket list. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. oh yeah. <laughs> he wants, but, he wants to go skydiving that I'm a little bit more hesitant about. But. Yeah. I feel like if you asked me when I was 20, I'd probably say yes, but now, yeah. now I'm like, <laughs> we have two kids. I don't know. <laughs> I don't need to be adventurous now. I'm yeah. over it. Um, uh, okay. So what final question for real this time, um, is there a book that you could share that made an impact on you? in your lifetime? There are a few um, that like from a health perspective, I would say there are a few that I've read that were really good. Um, one of them is the obesity code by Jason Fung. Um, another one is by one of my colleagues, um, Will Bolshevitz. Uh, it's called fiber fueled. He's a gastroenterologist in South Carolina. It's, it's a good read and it definitely can help you. The, the last part of the book is like a four week way to becoming more plant-based. So I think that was really helpful. 
Um, uh, Michael Greger's book, um, How Not to Die is another really good one. Um, these are all just kind of like, not that you have to take everything that they're saying in there and practice every single thing, but it's just good guidelines in terms of being able to figure out if you want to make changes in your life, healthy changes in your life, how to do it. I think those books have been impactful. Good. I, I will check them out. They will be on my reading list. And I have heard of How Not to Die. That's a really popular yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. It's great to speak with you. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, if somebody wants to reach out to you, perhaps a patient or someone else who in who's interested in talking to you more about your area of specialty, how should they reach out to you? They can. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram. My handle is gutsygirlmd. And so you can find me on Instagram. I have a Facebook page as well, which is not that active. I'm working on it. Um, and my uh, prior practice is integrated GI consultants. And we practice north of the Boston. We're in the Boston area, north of Boston. So any of those ways you can reach out. Um, I usually respond to all my DMs on Instagram. I'm pretty good about it. But again, like it's all for educational purposes. I'd never give personal advice. Um, and I always say like, you should speak to your physician for more information, but I can at least point you in the right direction. And I can vouch for the DMs because that's how I found you yeah. and <laughs> got you on here. So thank you for that. And I will have the links to the book recommendations and your um, Instagram handle and your website in the show notes. And I have to say, I love your Instagram handle. Very clever. I see what you did there. <laughs> It's all about like GI and kind of obesity education, but also like being um, it, like a physician mother and like kind of, you know, balancing a dual physician household with parenting and, you know. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's actually why I started the Fem Doctor series because I wanted to showcase women that are in um, professions and doing really big things, juggling, right? Like juggling career, juggling yeah, family, yeah. higher education, and really serving as incredible role models to other young women and girls, which you are doing. So thank you so much thank for you. that. Thank you so much. But yeah, it's basically for any girl out there who feels like, oh, it could be too hard, or I don't want to do it because someone says I can't. I, I think that's all nonsense. I think if you put your mind to it, and if you have People, the right people supporting you. You're, you should be able to, you know, get through and do it. I'm with you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.